All right, if you would, take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 3. We want to see how God's Word shows the words of those psalms to be true in our lives. What does it mean to say that all I have is Christ? We're looking to look at Revelation chapter 3. Starting in verse 14, this is the last week of a series of sermons going through these seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapters 2 to 3. And so we're going we're gonna to wrap up this morning and then in August we're going to transition to a, a new series of sermons that kind of build on what we've done in the book of Revelation for, for the last couple of weeks. As we get ready to move into a time of studying God's word, I want us to have a time of prayer right now focused on a ministry down in the Metroplex in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, a ministry called Mission Arlington. So right now, at this very moment, we have a mission team that's in Panama doing some amazing work down there, some amazing ministry in Panama, and they're going to be able to tell you more about that this coming Sunday night on August the 7th. But we also had a group that was down this past week in Arlington at a ministry called Mission Arlington. And Mission Arlington this Sunday turns 30 years old, which is significant because Emmaus is also turning 30 years old this year as a church. Mission Arlington, though, was started back in 1986 by a lady who is known as Miss Tilly. And Miss Tilly and her husband were missionaries in South Korea. And when they came back from South Korea and moved back to Arlington, they they asked the question, what would it look like to be on mission in Arlington the same way we were in South Korea? What does it look like to be missionaries here? And so they started this mission work called Mission Arlington, and there's also a sister organization called Mission Metroplex. And at this point, they have over 300 sites throughout the Metroplex area where they do ministry, clothing ministry, food ministry, backyard Bible clubs, and apartment complexes. We met adults in these apartment complexes who remembered going to the backyard Bible clubs as little kids there with Mission Arlington. And so we had a chance to do ministry. And so they've asked that churches who have been a part of Mission Arlington would set aside time this morning to pray for that mission, for what it looks like to share Jesus in a local community for 30 years and then praying that God would guide them in the days ahead. And one of the things that stood out to me is as we went down there from Emmaus to do work in mission, with Mission Arlington and to reach out to these apartment complexes, you have a lot of different churches down there that could be, and some of whom are doing good ministry in that area. But then I was reminded of the fact that two weeks ago, Emmaus, we hosted a group from Wichita Falls, Texas, who came up here to Moore and stayed in our facility and did ministry and more, and specifically next door at the children's home. And it was kind of ironic to me that here's a church from Oklahoma, us, Emmaus, going down to Texas, and we were going to do ministry down there. And then there's a group from Wichita Falls coming up here to Oklahoma, and people would say, why do that? Why leave your area? Why not just stay? There's something about getting outside of what you're familiar with, getting outside of your area, getting outside of your context, and going and seeing ministry in another place that makes your mind think about things, your heart feel things, you see things you wouldn't have seen otherwise. People say, there's plenty of mission work to do right here. Why would you go somewhere else? 
That's exactly right. There is plenty of mission work to do right here. That's why we go other places because when you go somewhere else, God does something in that process that when you come back, you re-engage with missions in your own location in a new way, in a fresh way. And so I'm thankful that Emmaus, throughout the summer, hosted mission teams that came into Moore and did ministry. I'm also thankful that we're able to go to Arlington and do missions there, that we're able to go to Panama and do missions there, wherever the Lord leads us in the days ahead. And so before we get started with the sermon this morning, I want us to pray for Mission Arlington, pray for the ministry that happens there day after day, week after week. And so let's do that right now as we get ready to to begin. Father, thank you that when we think about the body of Christ, when we think about church, and what it looks like for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. When we think about that, it's not centered on what happens in this building right here. God, we are one small piece of that puzzle. And God, we thank you for the ministry that you've given us here at Emmaus. And equally, God, we thank you for groups like Mission Arlington. We thank you for women like Miss Tilly, who are strong-willed, who are spunky, who get things done and have done that faithfully for 30 years. And God, I pray that you would raise up people here at Emmaus who would see their workplaces, who would see their kids' activities, who would see their activities in retirement, all of those as places to do mission. God, that we would be on mission in this location just as happens every day at Mission Arlington. God, thank you for the ways that we learn as we're on mission trips. Thank you for the group that's in Panama right now. And God, would you help us here at Emmaus to be a church on mission, which equally means that we'll be a church that's on mission right where we live and around the world, that it's both and, not either or. So God, guide us in the days ahead. Help us to know what that looks like as a church family as we turn 30 years old. And God, also guide us this morning as we study your word that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you want to teach us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Revelation chapter three, starting in verse 14. Here's what it says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So back there in verse 14, as we're getting started in this passage, this is the letter to the church at Laodicea. Probably if you surveyed those seven letters that are in chapters two to three, this is probably the most well-known 
the most quoted, the one you hear the most about. Laodicea, though, shows up in the New Testament long before you get to Revelation chapter 3. Back in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4, these verses will be on the screen so you don't have to reference them immediately unless you want to turn over there. But back in the book of Colossians, at the end of that book, Paul says, For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And then he goes on a couple of verses later in verse 15 and says, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter, so he's talking about the letter to the Colossians, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So what's going on here is you have three churches, not just three churches, but three cities that were kind of a tri-city area. We have our own tri-city area around here. Uh, they probably didn't have a Brahms at their exit at Tri-City, but there was a, uh, there was a tri- that's why I've always have known that, <laughs> that exit there. But uh, there are uh, three cities in this area. There's Laodicea, Colossae, and Hierapolis. They're in this area called the Lycus River Valley, and I think I have a picture on the screen maybe to show you this area. So you can see how this river Lycus comes in, and Hierapolis Laodicea and Colossae are in this area. Laodicea is in between these two towns. If you, if you pan out just a little bit, you can see where Laodicea is located. It's in the south central area of what we would think of as modern day Turkey. And in the Bible, it's usually called Asia Minor, sometimes even Asia. But Laodicea is a part of this tri-city area with Colossae and Hierapolis. And we even found out from the book of Colossians that apparently Paul had written a letter to Laodicea. For whatever reason, that letter has been lost throughout history. We don't have that letter in the Bible. There's a lot of theories out there about what that letter might be, what it was like, but it's obvious that these towns, these churches would have been connected because they were sharing these letters that Paul sent out. But in the book of Revelation here in chapter 3, Laodicea is the town that gets the message from Jesus. So if you go back to verse 14 in Revelation 3, what's the description that we find of Jesus? Here's the description. The amen. Now, I know there's a major potato, potato, uh, tomato, tomato discussion here. Do you say amen or amen? How about we do a little hand raising? How many are amen? How many are amen? Yeah, you guys are more holy than the rest. If you say amen, it's kind of like the people who say humble or humble. Like you take the H off the front and it makes you sound less humble when you say humble. But uh, it, this amen, amen distinction. Whatever the case, the word amen, the word amen here is a word that has to do with the fact that God always keeps his promises. It's this assurance, this trust in God's promises. In the book of Jeremiah, you have a reference to this word amen. In Jeremiah chapter 28, is that verse up on the we pull that verse up on the screen if we have it. Jeremiah said, amen, may the Lord do so. That gives us a description of what the word amen is about. May the Lord do what he says. May the Lord confirm your words which you have prophesied. And then in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. This is why it is through him we give our amen to God. 
knowing that God will always fulfill his promises. And this is structured here at the end of these letters in Revelation to say that what God has said would happen through Christ, he will definitely bring it to pass. The second description given there in verse 14, he's not only the amen, he's the faithful and true witness. If you're a Bible underliner, you have to underline the words faithful and true because this goes back to the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter one, verse five. It's also the description that's given of a man named Antipas in Revelation chapter two, verse 13. Being a faithful and true witness to Jesus is what the churches in Revelation are supposed to be all about. Being a faithful and true witness to Jesus is what Emmaus is supposed to be all about. What we're going to find in these verses is what does it mean to be a faithful and true witness? If Jesus is the ultimate faithful and true witness to God's victory, what does it mean for us to be faithful and true witnesses to Jesus? And and that gets unpacked in this letter. And then finally it says, so the amen, the faithful and true witness, and then the beginning of the creation of God. We're not gonna spend very much time on, on this particular verse, but, but just recognize, some people will take this verse here, this phrase, the beginning of the creation of God, and they'll use that as a connection point to say that Jesus is a created being. The word here, referencing beginning, is not beginning as in the first of like items. It's the idea of a ruler, one who is before all things. It's found other places in the book of Revelation where it says that Jesus is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega. What it's saying is Jesus was before all things and he will continue as ruler until all of eternity. So it's not beginning in the sense that Jesus was a created being or is a created being. It's Jesus is ruler. He is the one who existed before all things and will always be the ruler. And then you ask the question, which is always okay to ask in Bible study, so what? Don't be afraid to ask the question, so what? You get the answer in verse 15. Because we know those things about Jesus, what does Jesus have to say? He says in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And everyone prefers to learn that verse as vomit. Well, it's every little kid's favorite verse in scripture when you say, you mean Jesus threw up? Yeah, that's kind of what's going on here. This is the church that made Jesus gag. How do you want to be known as a church? The church that made Jesus gag. Don't let us be that church. By God's grace, may we not be the church that does that. But there's references here to hot and cold. And I want to take a couple of minutes and talk about this because inevitably the understanding of this passage can go off the tracks really, really quickly. Sometimes you'll hear this passage explained where Jesus says there, In verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. In these verses, hot does not mean on fire for Jesus, and cold means you're cold toward Jesus. Cut that out of your mind. I know it's a popular idea in this verse. It is not what these verses are about. It's not saying, Jesus is not saying, I wish that you were either completely opposed to me or completely on fire for me. 
not what he's referencing. This is why it's so important when we understand these scriptures that we understand what's happening in the situation that they were written to. Here's what's happening in this verse. Remember that you have a tri-city area. You have Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Laodicea has terrible water. The water there is nasty. They don't have a good water source close to them. The water has to be pumped in. The Romans were famous for these aqueducts that they would use to pump the water into different places, to get the water to different places. They have terrible water. You guys have probably lived in certain locations where the water was just nasty. Uh, We would play sports at a town down on the very southern tip of Oklahoma called Ryan. Ryan is right down there on the Red River, and the water there smells like sulfur. And so you're playing football or basketball, and you're tired and hot, and you come to the sidelines, and they give you this water, and you're like, oh my word, like why would you want to drink that stuff? We have to take our own water when we went there to play. Laodicea has terrible water. Colossae, though, their water is cold and pure. In Colossae, they would get the runoff, the snow melt from the mountains, and they had this incredibly cold, good water. Hierapolis, they were known for their warm springs, their hot, boiling springs, brought health. Uh, They were known almost to have these magical powers. People went to Hierapolis because they had hot water. So when Jesus says, I wish you were cold or hot, He's saying, I wish you were useful. Either be cold like the water in Colossae or be hot like the water in Hierapolis, but you're neither one of those. You're good for nothing is almost what's being said here. You're lukewarm. I can't do anything with you. You're not useful for anything. So it's not saying, once again, just so we're not confused here, it's not saying hot is on fire for Jesus and cold is I'm cold toward Jesus. Hot is the water at Hierapolis and cold is the water at Colossae. Lukewarm is the nasty water at Laodicea that you just think, oh, I can't do anything with this. It, it makes me sick. What does it mean to be lukewarm, though? What's Jesus doing with this idea? Look in verse 17. So he's going to give us the description of what's the problem with being lukewarm. What does it mean that we're lukewarm? Verse 17. Because you say, <clears throat> I am rich and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. If you received a copy of the bulletin when you came in and you turn it over on the back, there's some notes that kind of guide us through this section, but there are four descriptions, four descriptions that Jesus uses for what it means to be lukewarm. The first is, we think we're great when we're actually wretched and miserable. Laodicea was a place that was known for being self-sufficient. They had good resources other than water. It was a good place that had a lot going for it, and they thought well of themselves. It even says there in verse 17, it says, You say you have need of nothing, and you do not know that you're wretched and miserable. Their assessment of themselves was inaccurate. Have you ever met someone, and do not dare look to the side of you at this moment, but have you ever met someone who had an inaccurate assessment of themselves? They thought 
that they were pretty fantastic, and everybody else knew that that was not exactly the case. This is what we call the American Idol Syndrome. This is the, in those early years, especially of American Idol, the people that would come out there and audition, and they were terrible. And no one had the courage along the way to set them down and say, sweetheart, you do not need to be singing. Like, you just don't need to be doing that. They had a wrong assessment of themselves. The people at Laodicea thought they were great. They were boasting in themselves. And Jesus comes along and says, um, actually, I would describe you as wretched and miserable. That was his assessment. They were boasting in themselves. We have to be so careful that we don't have an assessment of ourselves that's inaccurate spiritually. We think we're good. We build ourselves up. We puff ourselves up with knowledge. And Jesus has to come along and say, be very careful about how you boast and what you boast in. 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1, verses 28 to 31, says God has cho chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong so that no man may boast before God. And then in Galatians, you get the same idea. Galatians chapter six, verse 14. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul is reminding these churches and Jesus is reminding the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation there's only one thing worth boasting in, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't have an assessment of ourselves that says we're great, we're mighty, we have it all together, we're self-sufficient. We say, no, I need Christ. He is enough, and I need him every day. Be careful and test your heart on this. Be very careful of something in your heart that says, you know what, I really don't need corporate worship. You know what, I really don't need to pray. I really don't need Bible study. I can pretty much get by without those sort of things. If we're not careful, what we're saying is our self-assessment is that we're self-sufficient, and Jesus is saying, no, without me, you have nothing. I'm everything for you. Boast in me, look to me. Just test our hearts against any attitude that says, I don't need Christ, I can get by on my own. The second thing that describes them as lukewarm is that we think we're rich when we're actually poor. Look back there in verse 17. Laodicea in Revelation chapter three, verse 17, because you say I am rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing, then in verse 18, Jesus turns around and says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. What's going on here is that the town of Laodicea was known as a banking center. It was an extremely wealthy area. They had enough money that they were able to host gladiator games there over the years. It was a place that when they were destroyed by an earthquake, you get the feeling after we talked last week about Philadelphia, there were a lot of earthquakes that happened in this particular area. But this area, the town of Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake and when it came time to rebuild the city, the Roman emperor offered them money to help them rebuild. He offered them FEMA money, and they turned it down. They said, no, we can take care of ourselves. We have enough money right now. We're not taking your aid. We don't need your help. We're wealthy. We'll take care of this. 
the church in Laodicea would probably have been wealthy as well. And there's a good chance that they saw their wealth as a sign of God's blessing. When in reality, Jesus turns around and says, you think you're wealthy, but you're wealthy in all the wrong ways. You're materially wealthy, but you're spiritually impoverished. You're spiritually poor. And that's a dangerous place to be, especially where we are right now as a church like Emmaus, where when you compare us with pretty much everywhere else in the world, we're extremely well off materially. And if we're not careful, we begin to rely on that as opposed to relying on the Lord. We become so self-sufficient that we don't see our need for the things of the Lord. And there's some incredible reminders that come in Scripture about what we need to think at a time like this. Isaiah chapter 55, I think, is one of them that I put up on the screen. Isaiah 55, verse 2. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Jesus is saying, you're going to find out that you have buyer's remorse. You've invested all of this money in the things of the world, and it's not going to do anything for you. One of the things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where moth and rust won't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Look at these verses from 1 Timothy chapter 6. And if you can turn over to 1 Timothy 6 in your Bible or in your phone, we're going we're gonna to read a little bit more of an extended passage here. Because when you think about wealth and you think about what it is to have an accurate assessment of money and material goods, 1 Timothy chapter 6 is one of the most important places you can go in the New Testament uh, to see this. If you're trying to find 1 Timothy 6, it's located toward the end of the New Testament, when you get past Paul's letters that don't have numbers and you start to get into 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and then you get to the letters to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're trying to think about what does it mean to have true wealth in the eyes of Jesus, not to rely on our own material goods, but to rely on the things of the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Contentment is a tough place to get, to get to the point that Jesus is enough. No matter what I have materially, Jesus is enough. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. And then in verse nine, look what it says. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So it's not riches that are wrong, it's this desire to get rich that will overtake us. Then in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And if you skip down a few verses there in 1 Timothy 6, you get down to verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Okay, this is where Laodicea and Emmaus start to come into play. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. 
it's not bad to enjoy the things of the world. It's bad to put our eternal trust in them. That's the distinction that's being made here. Verse 18, Paul goes on in the next verse there and says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Laodicea in Revelation 3 is another reminder in scripture, don't put your faith in the riches of this world because we'll find out one day that they were worth nothing. They will not gain for us anything of significance, anything of true life. All right, let's go back to Revelation 3 and get to the third point. So they had a wrong assessment of themselves. They thought they were great, but they weren't. They thought they were rich, but they weren't. The next thing in verse 17, it says, because you say I am rich and have need of nothing, but you do not know that you are actually naked. So what I do, I advise you to buy from me white garments. Down there in the middle of verse 18, I advise you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. So Laodicea in the ancient world was a banking center, but it was also a fashion center. It was a place that was known for making this incredible black wool, or not making the black wool, but it took this black wool and made these incredible garments. It was the place that you went for the latest fashion. Now, I know this won't strike you as surprising, but my whole life I have not been the most fashionable person. Uh, When I met Amanda and we started to get married, my fashion improved a lot. So we were in New Orleans before Hurricane Katrina, and we were, woke up on Saturday morning, and they were telling everyone to evacuate out of New Orleans because Hurricane Katrina was coming, it was going to be bad, and you need to get out of town. So we loaded up a few things, put things up on top of the bed, thought no big deal, we'll be back in a few weeks. Bad idea. All that went underwater. I found out later, though, when Amanda packed my bag as we were evacuating, she selectively left behind some items of clothing that she secretly hoped would go underwater. So we got to Oklahoma, and I started to assess my clothing situation. I said, Amanda, where are my jean shorts? She said, I, I left them. Why didn't you pack them up? They needed to go underwater. Oh, I was like, oh, thanks. So you're telling me I have a really bad sense of fashion. You purposely let my jean shorts drown because you did not want to carry them through life. That's pretty much what, how, how it went down. This place in Laodicea, you couldn't wear jean shorts around. This was a place that was known for fashion. They had all of the best clothing. And Jesus says, it's like you have nothing on. You have all the fashions of the day at your fingertips. And it's as if you have nothing on because you are not clothed in me. You're clothed in the things of the world. You're clothed in what's popular. You're clothed with what will make you stand out, and you're not clothed with me. The interesting thing about this is it ties all the way back to the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. They sin, and one of the things that happens as a result of their sin is they realize that they're without clothes. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And from the very beginning of Scripture, 
God has to teach his people what it's like to be appropriately clothed. He says, uh, those fig leaf things, those are going to wear out. I'm going to have to help you. And so in verse 21, it says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God is reminding his people that even when it comes to clothing, you can never be self-sufficient. You have a need for me to clothe you with my righteousness so that you will be right before me. First Peter chapter three, it's not up on the screen, but just as a reference point, First Peter chapter three, verse four, there's a warning there that says, don't let your beauty be outward. Don't let it be about these gold jewelry that you would wear, having all the best clothing, but instead, and he's talking specifically to wives um, at this point in 1 Peter 3, it says instead, be someone who has a quiet, gentle spirit. Be clothed in that way. It's just this continual reminder, do we want to be known for our clothing or do we want to be known for our godliness? And I know that's a simple point, but living in 2016, in a place like we do, don't miss the point of what it means to be completely dependent upon the Lord. All right, then the fourth thing here. So they thought they were great, they thought they were rich, they thought they had the best clothing, and then finally, they thought they had the best medicine. They thought they were able to see, but they were actually blind. Verse 17, you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, but you don't know that you're actually blind. So I advise you to buy from me eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This area around Laodicea, there was a powder that was developed into an eye salve. And it was famous all over the ancient world of being able to help people who had eyesight problems to be able to see. And so Jesus has the audacity to come to this church that was known for its eye medicine, its eye ointment, and tell them, you think you have eye salve, you think you can see, but apart from me, you're not able to truly see what is most important. And you get this theme all throughout the New Testament. We see with our eyes, but there's a deeper scene. There's a deeper understanding, a deeper recognition that has to happen that can only happen when God works in our lives. And so over and over and over again in these verses, Jesus is saying, be careful about being self-sufficient. Be careful about shutting me out of your life. Why does that matter? Because then you get to verse 19. What's the solution here? Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Because God loves us, he brings discipline. He speaks into our life and says, stop trusting in those things, trust in me. This is that moment when you grow up to be a parent and you start to sound like your parents. I really don't want to discipline you right now, but I'm going to do it because I love you. And then you think, man, I just sounded like my dad. What happened right there? It's l discipline, but it's discipline given in the context of relational love, covenant love. I'm going to discipline because I love you. And so what's their response? The end of verse 19, therefore be zealous and repent. The word zealous there is meant to be a contrast with the word lukewarm. Instead of being lukewarm, instead of being in neutral because you think you're self-sufficient, it's time to be zealous. It's time to get after this. This really does matter. Repent. Turn back to the Lord. Trust in him. Remember that Jesus is enough. He will supply everything that you need. 
What's the result of repenting? Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now this passage is sometimes used in the context of salvation, which there is an indirect relationship that it, that it does have to do with that. But primarily, it's not about salvation, it's about restoration of fellowship between the church and Jesus. So here's the image. They think they're great, they're rich, they have all the best clothes, they have all the best medicine, and they've gathered together for a banquet and they forgot to invite Jesus. So we've gathered together for what Baptists do best, which is to eat together. We've gathered together to eat as a church, to spend this time together as a church, and Jesus is on the outside knocking and saying, someone let me in. Because of our self-sufficiency, because we think we can do this thing on our own, what Jesus is saying is that you've shut me out of your church. Do you understand the fear factor in this? Forget Laodicea. Put, put Laodicea in the rearview mirror. Just put Emmaus right in front. Put your own life right there. Put, put your own family right there. You can have everything good in the world. You can look like you have it all together. And many times we feel that pressure, even as a church, to look like we have it all together. Except Jesus is not at work in that fellowship. He's on the outside knocking, saying, somebody, please let me in. I want to be with you. I desire fellowship with you. And the answer, the reason this is so important is found in John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, Jesus uses the image of a vine and the branches. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Revelation chapter three, verse 20 is answered by John chapter 15, verse five. As a church, our only hope to amount to anything our only hope to do anything that bears fruit is if we abide with Christ and he with us. If he is the source of our power, the source of our strength, the source of everything that we do in ministry. It doesn't matter about our clothing. It doesn't matter about our building. It doesn't matter about our bank account. None of that is what Jesus is looking for. He's saying, abide with me. I will abide with you and you will bear much fruit. And then finally, verse 21. We'll wrap up with this. So he who overcomes, in other words, he who says, I'm not going to trust in myself, I'm going to trust in the things of the Lord. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is saying, you will share in my glory, you will share in my riches. You thought your bank account was great, you thought your clothing was great, you thought your medication was great. I have something so much greater than that in store for you. He is pointing them behind. He's almost, in a sense, making light of all the wealth that they have here on earth by saying, no, no, there's something far greater. You will sit with me on my throne. You will share in all the goodness that he has for eternal glory, only though if you trust completely in him 
and say, I'm not gonna live for the things of this world. I'm not going to put my hope in material riches. I'm gonna put my hope in Christ. So as we come to the end of our time this morning, and we get ready to sing a song about this in response to God's word, let me ask you a question. And I guess I should just say, let me ask us a question. Is there a way in your life that you are seeking to be self-sufficient apart from the work of God? A part of your life that you say, I have to control this. I have to hold on to this. I have to make this happen. And yet what has happened is we've shut Jesus out of that. And he's standing there saying, I want to be at work at your life, in your life. I want to come in. I want to dine with you. I want to show you my power. But you have to open the door. You have to become zealous. You have to repent. Maybe you've gotten to a place in your life that you feel lukewarm. You know that you're not useful. You know that your faith is not producing anything. It's just, ugh, it's not doing anything. The solution to that is not to try harder on your own power. The solution to that is to turn back to the Lord, to be zealous and to repent and to say, God, I need you to work in my life in a way that only you can do. I'm not gonna boast of myself, I'm gonna boast only in the cross of Christ because I would rather have Jesus than anything that this world could ever offer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this letter to Laodicea. It's a really difficult letter to read in light of what it means to live as a Christian in the 21st century in, in North America. But God, we need that word. And God, I pray that if there are people here who are hurting this morning, especially hurting emotionally or financially, that they would not hear this word as a hammer against them, but God, that they would hear your love, that they would hear that you are enough to bring life and salvation, and that they would turn to you. And God, if there are those of us here who are holding on to our reputation or our wealth or our clothing or our medication, looking to those things for true life, and yet we've pushed you to the side, we've clothed, closed you out of what's going on. God, I pray that we would repent this morning and that we would say that you are enough that you are the source of our life and our salvation and we want to live solely for you. God, show us what that looks like. Show us how to do that as individuals and as a church family. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.